Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Today, we're talking about the Chronicles of Narnia, specifically the three C.S. Lewis books that were adapted for the screen and released in theaters between 2005 and 2010. At Rotten Tomatoes, the tomato meter score for the first movie, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, is 76%. And the critics' consensus reads, with first-rate special effects and compelling storytelling, this adaptation stays faithful to its source material and will please moviegoers of all ages. The next two films did not fare as well with critics. The tomato meter score for 2008's Prince Caspian came in at 66%, and The Voyage of the Dawn Treader only had 50% positive reviews. Of course, here at Below the Line, it's not about the critics. My guest today is Howard Berger, who supervised the prosthetic makeup for all three films. Howard, your work in film dates back to 1983 and continues right up to the present day. In 2006, you won an Oscar for your work on The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Welcome to Below the Line. Thank you. Thank you. First, I'd just like to say the hell with Rotten Tomatoes. So, <laughs> like, I don't buy any of that crap, any of that, uh, you know, you know, that and IMDb and all that stuff. Push off. <laughs> Someday we're going to do a podcast specifically on those so people can understand more of what's going on there. But yes, we only mention that for context and yeah. then we throw it out as well. We're here to talk about <laughs> the work that you did. Oh, and listeners, this is your spoiler warning for all things Narnia. But before we get into it, Howard, why don't you give me a little bit of backstory on how you got into film yourself? Well, I, I was lucky enough to grow up in Los Angeles. I was born in the early 1664 and my dad was in the industry. He was a sound sound mixer and post-production mixer. So he loved movies. I loved movies. I was raised on movies, of course, exposed early to the horror films. And even though I was terrified, I was enthralled. I couldn't get enough. And I remember my dad waking me up like what probably felt like, you know, two in the morning. It was probably eight o'clock at night. But George Romero's Night of the Living Dead was on TV. And my dad woke me. He's like, you have to get up. You have to watch this movie with me. I was little. I mean, I was, it was, you know, I mean, it was probably just me and my first sister, Heidi. So that was a long time ago. And I watched it and it was terrifying, but fantastic. So I was hooked on monsters right out of the gate. And my dad introduced me to the classic Universal monsters. And then, of course, the, the Toho monsters, which I loved. And, and then I think... Um, you know, when I saw the original Planet of the Apes in uh, in 69, that was really what blew my mind. And I thought, there are people that must make these characters, you know, makeup people. And I asked my dad all these questions and, and he did. He told me like, I'm a sound mixer, but there's makeup artists and they create all this stuff. And the guy that did that was uh, John Chambers. And and then, you know, he bought me a copy of Famous Monsters of Filmland that Forey Ackerman put out. And, and I was just hooked. I, all I had were monsters on the brain. Like every, I just came across a bunch of my sketchbooks when I was a kid and it's just filled with doodles of monsters and, <laughs> and, 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 you know, so I was very much immersed into that. So I started my hand at like sculpting and drawing and things like that. And my mom was an artist. I was lucky. I had the genetic ability to be artistic as well as the genetic ability of being a, a complete cinephile. I got the two best parts of my folks, uh, which I was very lucky and they were very supportive. So I had learned when I was eight years old, there was a great makeup store called Sig Friends Beauty Supply that was in North Hollywood. And though it's it's still around, it's now just called Friends Beauty Supply. And it's owned by uh, another group of people who are, are fantastic. And it's a gigantic, enormous store. But this used to be like this teeny little 
I don't know, it felt like maybe it was 800 square foot, but it was crammed with tons and tons of stuff. So I talked my grandfather into taking me there one Saturday and I walked in and it was like going into Disneyland. It was like the smells and the sights and, you know, it's pictures hanging on the walls and there were, you know, Mike Westmore appliances from something hanging over there. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is where I, I want to be. So I ended up meeting somebody there, a guy named Namie who, who worked there. And uh, he introduced me to a book that was written by Mike Westmore. And I bought a bunch of materials or my grandfather purchased a bunch of materials. And I went home and I cast my own face using alginate, which is a dental material we, we use to cast people's uh, faces and so forth. And I just started sculpting and I started sculpting like little masks. The first one I did was like an incredible Hulk mask. And then, uh, and I didn't know what I was doing. So, but I was just following this book. And as time went on, I just kind of developed my own techniques and skills. And I then, uh, hunted down my favorite makeup artists, which were Rick Baker, Stan Winston, and, and Dick Smith. And Dick lived on the East Coast, so I started writing him. He was very approachable. And, and then uh, uh, Stan Winston's uh, studio was about two and a half miles from my house. So I walked to his shop when I was 12 with a box of garbage. And he was kind enough to let me in and, and look at my stuff. And then Rick Baker, I just literally stalked until he finally, uh, I was able to finally talk to him after like calling his home and talking to his, his then wife uh, every night for six months until she said, okay, you need to, here's Rick's studio number. And then I was uh, 14 at that time. And I remember <laughs> I got invited to the studio the next day and my mom dropped me off and I spent the day at Rick Baker's, which was mad. Magical. And it always is. And I still think about all those times, you know, but I was very lucky. I mean, I'm always surprised, you know, when with my generation, I have so many great friends and collaborators, collaborators, rather, that we've been buddies for over 30 years. And we all kind of have the same background, with the exception of growing up in Los Angeles. Like I've got friends that are from Florida or from Ohio or, you know, from Boston. And we all had that obsession. It was almost like Close Encounters, you know, when you have this this obsession and this this yearning to go to Devil's Tower, Wyoming. But that's what it was. It was like you didn't know why. But for some reason, there was a reason for you to make that pilgrimage across the country and end up in Los Angeles and try to get a job making monsters at one of the one of the handful of studios. And we all did that when we were in our like 18 years old, fresh out of high school. We're like, this is it. You know, it's like, I'm not going to go to college. I, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to save my parents a whole bunch of money and I'm going to go get a job as a monster maker, which is what we all did. And we all met, you know, all of my friends. So I'm, I'm still friends with since we were 18 years old. Wow. You know, and it's, it is great. It's, you know, people like Mitch Devane and John and uh, uh, Everett Burrell and obviously Greg Nicotero and Bob Kurtzman and Norman Cabrera, you know, all these guys. And we've, we've remained like a, a, a force, you know, within the industry, but also a great, great friendships that will never die. Uh, it's because we all had this calling to Devil's Tower, Wyoming. Right. <laughs> and uh, it, it's crazy, but it's just, I mean, we always say if we all lived on the same block when we were kids, it would have been the greatest Halloween of all time <laughs> because we just always, all of us had the same bedrooms. I look at photos of Norman when he was 18 years old and his room in Florida is wall to wall masks. My bedroom was wall to wall masks, you know. You know, we just did makeups and monsters. And I think one of the um, the key factors, again, is that our parents were extremely supportive. Mm -hmm. Our parents really backed us. And, and I don't have any, none, and there's not one of my friends who said, oh, my parents thought this was ridiculous and, you know, just thought I was wasting my time and when I was going to get a real job. 
they all supported us in, in our passion and they saw we were dead serious about it. I mean, I remember when it clicked for my parents and I had sculpted something or was making something and my dad just went, I think that this is not just a hobby. I think this is going to be your career. And I was probably 13 or 14 years old and I was already doing tons of stuff. I was trying to be as prolific as I could in my little workshop outside and, you know, making hundreds of masks a year and uh, makeups and all that stuff. And plus I, I had three younger sisters who were all my, I experimented on, they were all my <laughs> models. So, uh -huh. you know, um, they all, they all got tortured with face casts and glued stuff to their face and eyebrows ripped out and all that stuff. Maybe fun Halloween's for them as well, though, right? When that came around every year. Uh, yeah, to some degree. I mean, you know, like my sister Heidi, I remember wanted to go as like a flower one year. And I'm like, no. <laughs> the, the thing that, you know, when it's um, Halloween, like I have three children that are all grown up now, but I would, I really forced them into makeups when they were little. And, uh -huh. and uh, I don't know if they ever liked it. I don't think they did, you know, but I made costumes. I made my daughter a star costume, but I didn't think about her walking or putting her arms down. So it was a fabricated <laughs> costume and she spent the whole, Halloween with her arms trying to walk and uh, it was great I mean I thought it looked cool and her little face was sticking out of it but she was like dad that was the worst <laughs> well this enthusiasm then you did take it and worked at the studios you worked with Stan Winston and Rick Baker in those early years and uh, uh, so was it sort of an apprentice program at the time that folks no. came in or how did how did that work as far as no doing stuff with them yeah when I came in there was no more apprenticeship program but it was I got a job and I knew what I was doing. So, I mean, I started off working with people like Stan Winston, which was amazing. And then I got to go to Rick Baker's, which is a dream come true. And I worked for Kevin Yeager and Mark Showstrom and John Beekler and Alan Opponent Makeup Effects Lab. I was really lucky. I got some amazing experience. And then again, met more and more people and became friends. And, you know, what was great about my generation is, is that we really shared there wasn't any secrets. If, if we needed help with something, we'd reach out. If we needed a question or like, you know, I could call Steve Wang and ask him how he did something specific. He would let me know or somebody called me and I would say, oh yeah, you know, do this. And we had like a little shop and we would lend our shop to our friends. Like if they had a project or something they could work out of the little space that, that we had. You know, the apprenticeship programs were with the major studios back in the good old days. And you would you would get a, a apprenticeship there at, let's say, Disney, like Stan Winston did. He was an apprentice under Bob Schiffer, who was the head of makeup at Disney, Walt Disney Studios. And that's where you go through a, an apprenticeship program and then move up the ladder. But by the time I got into it, that wasn't so. And we were all pretty much self-taught and just jumped into the, the frying pan and figured it out, you know. So we had to be super innovative and just come up with ways of doing things, you know? And also there wasn't like stores or shops now, or obviously no social media or online. So we had to find materials that we could then adapt to our use. So, you know, using a material like alginate, which is used for life casting, it wasn't used for life casting, that's used for taking dental impressions, but we figured, oh, hey, we could do this. And that stuff's been used for years before me. But again, it's all about figuring it out, you know? And, you know, what about this adhesive? You know, a lot of great innovators. Dick Smith was a great innovator. And Dick Smith, we call him the godfather of makeup. He did Little Big Man and The Hunger and Amadeus and Altered States and a hundred other things, the Godfather movies. So Dick was very innovative and came up with ways of, of doing things that nobody had ever thought of or done, you know? And again, he was very, very uh, forthcoming with how he did things. I have a giant binder called Howard's Book of Knowledge, and it's filled with all my letters and notes from Dick Smith from, oh, since I was a kid. And it's all valuable. 
you know it's like he gave me his blood formula because prior to dick reinventing blood the way blood looks on film if you look back at films from the the 60s and 70s it's the, the blood looks weird like if you watch if you watch dawn of the dead it's like this cadmium red paint but it looks real in person but on film it photographs like that i like the look i mean for it's a very stylized look and it's called 3m blood but Dick was like, this blood is horrible. So he reinvented it and he came up with his own formula, which we still use. I still use all the time. And that's what we use at KNBFX. And we make tons and tons of blood for us and other people. And it's the Dick Smith formula and it's superb. It's, it, you know, it can't go wrong. And it's just these guys, you know, the, the, the early pioneers uh, like John Chambers and Rick Baker and Stan and so forth and Dick Smith and Rob Bottin and Rick Canham. They're all these guys that reinvented the wheel over and over and over again. And, and now it's just more accessible, you know, because of social media. So anybody can hop online and do a tutorial and like feel like they can, you know, become a makeup effects artist, which isn't so. But, you know, we all had to work really hard to get where we are today and get really and where we were then. So, you know, it's a, I think it's a little bit easier now, uh, just because again, it's so, it's so accessible, but I value the time of struggle. The, the combination of struggling and failure really builds character. Nothing came easy for any of us. So it was, it was well appreciated and uh, earned where we are today. Speaking of those early years, Howard, you mentioned in passing uh, your group, uh, K&B Effects. I know you founded that in 1988 with a couple of the folks that you mentioned earlier, uh, Greg Nicotero and, and Bob Kurtzman. Tell me more about how that came together. Well, we were all really great friends. What, what happened is I got hired to go work on Day of the Dead in Pittsburgh. I was I'm rounding the corner on 19. And uh, I was working for John Beekler and I needed to find somebody to take my spot at John's. And the day before this guy, Bob Kurtzman had come in for an interview and I saw his card on the table and I said, John, what do you think about Bob Kurtzman? He's like, yeah, you know, whatever you think. So I called Bob and he was available and he took my job. And that night we met for dinner and went to go see a movie and we hit it off like peas and carrots. I mean, right away I was like, oh, this guy and I are gonna be friends forever. So we went out, had a great time. Bob started working at Beekler's. I hopped a plane, went to Day of the Dead. That's where I met Greg Nicotero, who was Tom Savini's assistant at the time. Little did we know, you know, all the great things that would come for Greg as a makeup artist and a director and executive producer and so forth and so on. But uh, that's where I, I then became great friends with Greg. So when Day of the Dead finished, Greg was supposed to go back to med school. He basically took a semester off from med school because his dad's a, a doctor. And uh, he's just like, I have this opportunity. And, you know, it's Tom Savini and George Romero are giving me this opportunity. And I'm just going to take a semester off and work on this film. So after the movie was done, I went to him and I said, dude, you're not going back to med school. Move to L.A. Listen, you, me and this guy, Bob Kurtzman, we're going to get a house. We're all going to live in it. We're going to just do makeup effects and you're going to be way happier. So I remember... It was almost like we were we had to go see his parents and it was like we were going to go elope or something. And, and his dad, who's kind of a strict guy, you know, sitting on the couch with one eyebrow raised, you know, like John Belushi and Greg and I are say, so listen, you know, Dr. Jim, Greg's going to move to L.A. And Greg's like, yeah, I'm not going to go back to med school. I really want to go to L.A. and live with Howard and we're going to pursue this business. And all his father said is you will be nothing with hair like that because we started to grow our hair long and uh, <laughs> that's all he said. And we're like, okay. And then we left, Greg moved to LA and well, the rest is history. So Bob, Greg and I 
rented a home together uh, for two years, two and a half years. It was great. We called it the House of Wayward Makeup Artists because if somebody was in town and didn't have a place to stay, they could always crash at our place. We had parties every Saturday night. Uh, we had no money. We were all broke, and uh, but we still had a great time. Every Sunday morning, you'd wake up and there'd be passed out makeup effects guys lying on the floor <laughs> and, you know, you'd make breakfast and whatever, and then everybody would split. It was really, really super fun. But we ended up working a lot together. Like we, all three of us got hired over at Mark Showstrom's to work on Evil Dead 2. And that was really a blast. And it started to get to the point where we were getting hired as a group all the time. And at some point we got together, I remember we had dinner and we said, you know what? We work for everybody. We always work together. We don't get the money. We don't get the recognition. We're running shows for these guys. Let's stop working for people. Let's take a chance and let's start our own company. And at that same time, it just happened that Scott Spiegel, who co-wrote Evil Dead 2, had called Greg and said, hey, I'm going to make this movie called Intruder. And uh, it's got some makeup effects, but I don't have any money. And could you recommend some young guys to do the effects? And Greg went, yeah, us, stupid. <laughs> and so we did it for like $700. But the, um, the catch was that we asked for a front card that said special makeup effects by Kurtzman, Nicotero, and Berger EFX Group. And they said, yeah, no problem at all. And that broke that catch 22, like, you know, trying to get that front card. And then our name started to spread that these new guys in town. They're really, really good. They work really quickly. They do it very economically. And we, it just started working and working. And we got our first shop, which was like, I don't know, it was probably like a thousand square foot. And then we moved up to 2,500 square foot to 3,500 3, square foot. Now we're in a 20,000 square foot shop. So it's changed a lot since our little little bowling alley shop that it looked like but yeah it was great and then you know as things change you know bob kurtzman decided to leave the company and move his family back to ohio where he's from he had two small children and he wanted to raise his kids with his family his folks were there his three brothers were there and you know so he moved back and then greg and i just ran the company and it was really really wonderful and it was just great it was great working with greg so uh, closely and it was just the just the both of us you know, making the decisions and, and running everything. So it was, uh, it was good. It was a good change. And, um, you know, here we are almost, what, 30, 34 years later or whatever, uh, you know, still running K&B, which is crazy. And so what was the state of K&B then in, I guess, that 2004, 2005 period mm. when you were approached to do The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? It was crazy busy. It was crazy because we got approached to do, and it was a, it actually, it wasn't so, well, we were approached, but it wasn't such an easy like grab. It took six months to court these guys, especially Andrew Adamson and Disney. And they were talking to big guys too. I mean, they were talking to Kevin Yeager and Stan Winston, you know, talking to the, the muscle and we weren't muscle yet, but we got a really amazing recommendation from Richard Taylor from Weta Workshop. And what had happened is, is that Rich was supposed to do Narnia but um, Peter Jackson got a green light on King Kong. So Richard needed to shift his focus to Kong, but uh, though Weta did all the weaponry and all the armor, which is spectacular. And then Richard said, you know, you should really talk to Howard Berger because I think he's right for this job. So I interviewed for months and it went on and on and on and on until one day I got the phone call from Andrew Adamson who said, welcome to Narnia. And I was like out of my mind because this is something I've been wanting to do forever. One of the reasons was because I wanted to work on a movie my children can see because up until that point, there was nothing I worked on that my kids could see or come to set. I didn't, you know, it just wasn't appropriate. But it was super exciting. So during that time, we had Chronicles of Narnia in the shop. We had Land of the Dead, which Greg was overseeing, and then also Sin City, which Greg was overseeing. 
So we had three massive shops. It was the biggest, I think, that KNBA had ever gotten. We ended up hiring 120 people to work at the studio and had a branch out and we rented a couple other facilities across the street from us that was like the centaur you know shop and this was the marv's shop or whatever so it was a lot of stuff so greg and i that was also the first time where greg and i divided our attention where in the sense of we normally would work together on shows side by side but because those shows were so huge i took narnia and then greg took land of the dead and sin city that was the beginning of us working you know working together but apart and it worked out very well. And it was a it was a banner year. You know, I think the work that Greg supervised and orchestrated on Sin City is exceptional. Like, I really think like those makeups are great. I was really disappointed when awards season came about and, and that film didn't get noticed for anything. And I just couldn't understand it. And I think what had happened just and I'm sidetracking, I know, is that because there was so much digital augmentation to the frame there wasn't digital augmentation to the makeups it was to the the style of the film and everything was designed to fit into that context but i think because that was such a new technology that people and this is before i was in the academy if i was in the academy i would have certainly orchestrated things a little differently but it was just a shame they probably just went it's all digital it's all digital so it was already like, you know, the redheaded stepchild or whatever. But I was very disappointed. I know Greg was very disappointed. But I think the work that Greg did for Sin City is some of the best work that KNB has ever done. And I felt that year, 2014, we produced some of the greatest stuff ever. I mean, it was, yeah, and doing Land of the Dead was really kind of a prelude to Walking Dead, you know. I mean, Greg is the, the king of the zombies, I always say. And, and to be clear, regarding Walking Dead, I literally have nothing to do with Walking Dead. That's where the split happens. Nicotero is a thousand percent involved with Walking Dead. I have nothing to do. So when people always go, hey, tell us about Walking Dead, I say, I don't know. I have nothing to say because I don't work <laughs> on the show. My company does. And Greg Nicotero is a thousand percent in, in charge of it. So I think doing Land of the Dead kind of was a great uh, springboard to see where we could go. And when when Walking Dead happened, it just kind of led into that. And Greg already had a great idea for all the zombies and the brand. So but anyhow. That year was insane. So Greg got to go to Toronto uh, and work nights in the winter. I got to go to New Zealand in the, their summer and where it was beautiful and gorgeous. And we would talk every Sunday. We were 12 hours apart and I was uh, having the time of my life and Greg was not. <laughs> I, yeah, I can, I can so I, try, I tried to temper it down like, oh, yeah, it's going fine. It's super. It was super hard. I mean, working on Narnia on Chronicles of Narnia was one of the most exhausting uh, experiences of my life. I, I truly do believe I'm still exhausted. And I think you can never uh, catch up on your sleep. You can never get it back, you know, and I'm still exhausted from working on that film. Tammy Lane was my key. And I had like 40 people there from all over the country. You know, I brought some U.S. people. I had people from New Zealand. I had people from Australia. I had people from uh, the U.K. And we worked like dogs. And it was a non-union movie. So mm. we would have very short turnaround, which was really, really difficult. And uh, and for some reason, they let us drive to and from set, which, of course, was very dangerous. I did I did a lot of the driving. It's like, you know, now that we're talking about what's going on in the industry. Right. Uh, luckily, we, we never crashed when we had those 1.30 a.m. calls for us. Right. So we can go and build for seven hours, and then the rest of the crew would show up to shoot. Then we'd do 14-hour shoot, and then we'd have two hours to clean up, go home, go to bed, and then get up and do it again. So it went on, that went on for 150 days. So it was, it was harsh. Oh, yeah, it was harsh. But it was a great experience. I mean, I love working with Andrew Adamson. He was amazing, inspiring definitely one of my favorite directors. 
he had specifics, extreme specifics, especially because Weta had spent so much time designing already before we came on. We just went and revisited some of their designs to just kind of retrofit them for, to work a little little better on actors. But Weta, you know, was already uh, ahead of the game with us. So, but it was it was my most magical experience working on that film. It paralleled the story where, you know, we're from Earth and we go through the closet and we spent nine months in Narnia <laughs> and it was magical and I'd never experienced anything like that in my life prior or ever again and then at the end you come out of the wardrobe and you're like super depressed because you're not in Narnia anymore and I, I went home and I was sick for two weeks during Christmas I didn't get out of bed so sick but it was mostly heartbreak I missed everybody I missed the adventure and I dreamed that hopefully I can do it again and then a couple of years later, like two years later, I got to go back to Narnia, which was great. But that first uh, that first one was something else. But shooting in New Zealand, and I had been to New Zealand before because we had worked on Hercules and Xena. Um, so I was well-versed in New Zealand. To put it in perspective, when I went to New Zealand the first time, uh, and it's just when production started there. I mean, Peter Jackson had been making a couple of his films, but that was it. There wasn't like big productions in New Zealand by any means this giant, enormous Disney, or well, well, not prior to Narnia. With Hercules, that was extremely low budget too, but it was really fun. And it was 30, 38 cents to the dollar uh, when I went there. And I was like, this is, this is like highway robbery. I mean, this is, I can buy anything. And I remember a Starbucks opened and myself and Dave Wogue, who was with me from, from K&B, we found it and it was just a little bit of Americana because New Zealand was like 20 years behind. The, the, although they had cell phones way before we did, like nobody had landlines there and it was all about <laughs> cell phones. So they were way ahead of the world on that. But a Starbucks open and that's not say, that was kind of like the Kiwis hated it because they have amazing coffee and amazing cafes. But I was like, oh, we got to go. So we went and uh, it was the only one opened in New Zealand. The, the prices were the US prices we were paying Kiwi dollars. So like coffees were like 38 cents or whatever. And so Dave and I just sat there and we were kept drinking coffee and we go there and we went up and asked like, Hey, what are your hours? And they said, well, we don't, they never told us. So we're just going to stay open 24 seven. And I'm like, Oh my God, I think we're in heaven. <laughs> so they didn't know. And that's just a really Kiwi thing. You know, it's like, Oh mate, we don't know. They didn't tell us what time to close mate. So they stayed open. <laughs> Uh, they finally got wise to it and they ended up closing at a specific time. But <laughs> but uh, it was a crazy place. It was just a, it, but it's New Zealand is my favorite place uh, mm -hmm. I've ever been. It is the most beautiful place on Earth. Wonderful people. Great food. Very humane in filming. Like we would just do 12 hours. It'd be 7, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. You know, you could make dinner, eight o'clock reservations and make them. And it was really wonderful. But the people in New Zealand are spectacular. I, I love them all. I miss them terribly. And I want to, as soon as this is all over with and we can get into other countries, New Zealand's the first place I'm going to go because I, I haven't seen a lot of my friends forever. And they became lifelong friends as well. But yeah, no, it was, it's Narnia was life-changing, you know, and you work so hard, you know, I got to work with James McAvoy and it was James's first movie. And then Tilda Swinton, you know, who was super, super cool. And I mean, everybody, you know, Karen Shaw was great. And, but yeah, the Mr. Tundas was the very first makeup we shot. Okay. 
and getting tumness right was a really big thing. Like we had a lot of test makeups and things changed, you know, and James was wonderful. And it was myself, Tammy and Sarah Rabano who applied James's makeup. And originally he was only supposed to work 12 days and he worked something like 37 days. Wow. Um, yeah, it was crazy. It was way over, <laughs> way over the, their estimate. Uh -huh. Um, but it was great. Great production people on that show, too. That really made it great. A guy named Phil Stoyer, who was the UPM co-producer, who's a great, who's now like the king of Disney. Awesome dude. Mark Johnson, who I've worked with a bunch. Mark also produces um, Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad and won the Academy Award for Best Picture for Rain Man. Mark is a stellar human being. Just really good people on that show. Like, Everybody was there for a reason, and that was to make a great film and tell the story properly. When we were designing it, I asked Andrew Adamson, I said, so tell me what your feeling is like, where is this film coming from? And he said, well, when I was younger, I was, you know, always sick. I was a sickly kid. So I was in bed and all I did is read and I read Narnia a million times. He said, so this movie is my recollection as a child of what I believe Narnia is. And that really struck a chord. And at that point, I was like, okay, I'm going to design everything from a child's point of view, from Andrew's child point of view, not like what, you know, my point of view or an adult that already has preconceived notions. So what I would do is every Friday we had art reviews. So we do, we bust a nut all week long and get all this artwork done and makeup tests and all this stuff. And so Andrew and Mark Johnson and Stoyer and all the, everybody else, visual effects came to K&B. And we would review everything. And I, we'd do a big presentation every Friday. But every Thursday, I would bring my three kids in who were very young and get their point of reference because they were big Narnia fans. They all read the books. And they would give me their notes, especially my daughter. My daughter is very vocal. She had great notes about things. And I would then adapt them because I wanted to see what kids thought. Like me, I think like, okay, it's like Alien and Jaws, but different. And then we can make it, you know, my daughter was like, nope, Mr. Tumnus's ears are too big. And that's the wrong color hair. And the white witch doesn't have black hair. And I'm like, really? She's like, nope, nowhere in the book doesn't say the white witch has black hair. There's no, nothing at all about the white witch's description. I'm like, so I had to go back and read it again. <laughs> I'm like, yep, she's right. <laughs> so, um, she, they were really helpful in helping me navigate those waters. So now, Howard, when you talk about your kids coming in, is that because, and they're coming over to KMB, is this going on in Los Angeles then? Like yes, all yes, the I'm sort sorry. of planning and prep for? Oh, oh, yeah, we, we had like an eight month build in Los Angeles. So, yeah, we started building everything at KB and then we shipped everything once it was done or sort of done. And then we set up a shop in New Zealand. And that's where we finished the build on everything. It was just more cost effective to do it that way. Right. But then my family came to New Zealand and spent four months during the oh, summer. Nice. And it was great. And they got to come to this, the set all the time and know everybody and really be part of it. My little son, Jake, who's not so little anymore, is even a fawn in Prince Caspian. So like we had at the end of the parade, he's leading the parade actually. And I'm like, Jake, come here. I'm going to make you up as a fawn today. And he was great. You know, I put the nose on him and the headpiece and the ears and all that stuff. And, and uh, he was the fawn leading the parade at the end of the movie. And my other kids were humans. Cause they're like, we don't want to be makeup. We don't want to do makeups. Jakey wants to do makeups. I'm like, okay, that's fine. Jake would do anything to be near me. So, um, but yeah, no, it was, it was great. I mean, you know, we shot all over the place. It was, you know, New Zealand was amazing. Some of our locations, we had a helicopter into every day. I mean, imagine, you know, you pack up your makeup kit, helicopter up to a mountaintop and you're there all day. And then, you know, at the end of the day, run down the mountain <laughs> and get to the trailer and start cleaning everybody up. But God, that was so, it was just such a great experience. And so, you know, so the movie's done and I didn't want to see anything until it was a hundred percent. I wanted to see it in the screening. 
because Andrew would say, hey, you want to come to the editing room? I'm like, I don't. I don't want to see it half done. Because I'd never seen Mr. Tumnus completed. Like I'd always seen James in his makeup and from his like mid thigh down was green screen. So I, I wasn't sure what VFX was going to do. And I remember we went to a screening at the DGA and Mr. Tumnus came out and I just like was an audible gasp. And my daughter was like, shh, dad, dad. And I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, look. And it was magical for me because I got to see Mr. Tumnus, you know, as I've not ever seen him before. And I just love the movie. I fell in love with the film. It's what it's my all-time favorite movie that I ever worked on. So one thing leads to another. And then the, the gravy is you end up getting recognized by your peers and you end up getting a BAFTA nomination, an Oscar nomination, a bunch of nominations from other things. And, and it's really magical. And you're like, I never thought about this. I didn't, this is not, you don't go into a movie going, you know, this is going to be my Oscar. If you do that, then you're, you're dead in the water. Mm-hmm. That's just a stupid way to think. But you're there to do the job and do the best job you can and have a really great time doing it. And that's what we did. So, you know, we got nominated for these things. We won for everything. It was a great period. Uh, I had the most fun running around meeting celebrities, you know, the, the best part of the Oscars, tell you the truth, is the nominee luncheon, because the Academy has a lunch for everybody, everyone who's nominated. So in that room, you're in that room, and I kid you not, you got Charlize Theron, you got John Williams, you got Steven Spielberg, you got Tim Burton, but you're all on the same level because you're just nominees. Right. And I took full advantage of that. So I took Greg with me as my guest to the Oscar luncheon for Narnia, because I was like, I got to take Greg, my God. So we went and had fun and sitting at our table was Tim Burton, Steven Spielberg, you know, a couple other folk. And Greg and Tim Burton sat together and just talked about famous monsters the whole time. <laughs> and then, you know, Tammy Lane got to meet Steven Spielberg and came over and we were just all full down. So, but I brought my camera. This is before, before I had an iPhone. iPhone. Right. Yeah, weren't out yet. So um, I just had my little camera and I took a billion photos with me with celebrities. And I was like, even John Williams, like I'm a biggest John Williams fanatic. And there's John Williams. I go over, I go, Mr. Williams, can I please take a photo? He's like, of course you can. And got a photo with my arm around John Williams, you know, the greatest film composer of all time. And Charlie Theron and, and William Hurt. Yeah, it was so much fun. And then afterwards, Tammy and I left and we went over to um, uh, Casa Vega. Uh, which is a, a Mexican restaurant, which appears in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and continue to, you know, inebriate ourselves and celebrate. It was great. And that whole month, we just kind of had parties and and then we got to go to the Oscars and then they called our names and we ran on set up there and got our Oscar and said our one minute speech and then got shuffled off to press. And I mean, it was great too, because like having Steve Carell and, and Will Ferrell give us our Academy Awards was excellent. And I remember they had made themselves up and we were in the elevator going up to press and Steve and Will went, I, I, I'm sorry for this. You guys must think like we're the worst. I'm, and I went, you guys are the greatest. Are you kidding? And then years later, I ended up working with Will and I, rem- I said, remember you gave me my Oscar? And he's like, oh my God. So worked a couple of times with Will and and that was, it was just great. I couldn't ask for two better people. I mean, two of the funniest human beings on earth. And, and they had made a joke, right? About they did their makeup very badly. Yes. That's they as, purposely, as as the- yeah, they're like, we did our makeup and hair. Yeah. And it's just terrible. Maybe like Steve had eyelash like falling off and stuff. <laughs> it was very, very funny. But one of the great things is I was competing against a really great friend of mine, Dave Anderson, and his father, Lance Anderson, who's a veteran makeup artist. And it was for that movie, Cinderella Man. Mm-hmm. And we were also nominated against the Star Wars Episode Three, um, Revenge of the Jedi or Return of the whatever. Yeah. Yeah. One of my least favorite movies. And um, <laughs> uh, I don't even remember it. So but uh, anyhow, I felt 
I was in great company with Dave and with the guys from Star Wars, of course. And to win was just really, it was great. You know, I'll always remember that, that moment. And it was a special time, you know. And you walk around with your Oscar. So, so after the governor's ball and all that stuff, Tammy and I wanted to go to the Vanity Fair party. So we got into our limo with all our friends and we drove there and we got up to security and the security asked the driver, like, do you guys have tickets? And we, Tammy and I rolled our windows down and we both held our Oscars out of them. And they went, you got a, you got a ticket to go anywhere you want tonight. And we got to go to Vanity Fair. I ran around like an idiot that whole night meeting people. And like, you know, I met John Mellencamp. I met Seal. I met Jennifer Lopez. I met everybody. And again, I'm, they're like, oh my God, congratulations. Can I hold your Oscar? I'm like, yes, please. You know? To me, it was like the more people that could hold the Oscar, the better. And it was great because after we won, you know, we go back out and I just finished working on Kill Bill movies and I saw Uma Thurman and she ran over and gave me a big hug and she was like, Howard, this is so great. I'm so proud of you. And I'm just like, this couldn't be any better. I mean, Uma Thurman. And then I got to meet uh, Lee Majors was there and Lee came over and I, you know, I handed him his, the Oscar and like, just like the sound effect and laughed. And then I became friends with Lee later on. And he's a wonderful man. And I think one of the greatest things, and you can attest to this, you know, what I, one of the things I love most about this industry is meeting, meeting people I grew up idolizing and getting to work with them. And they turn out to be really, really wonderful people. I'm sure that you've, People have asked you like, oh, you know, you work with all these actors. They must be really terrible people. And I'm like, no, I have like two people I can't stand, but that's two out of like 10,000. It's pretty darn good, you know, but everybody's been so wonderful and lovely in in my career. And, uh, you know, working with people like James McAvoy, who I've maintained a really great friendship with, you know, I spoke to him about a, a month ago and getting to work with Anthony Hopkins and getting to work with Uma Thurman and and then meet Lee Majors, you know? I mean, I grew up sitting in front of the TV every Friday at 8 p.m. waiting for the $6 million man. And now like Lee Majors, when I get a text on my phone from Lee Majors, I take a photo of it and I'm like, I can't, look, can you believe that Lee Majors is writing to see how I'm doing? It's insane. So, I mean, I think part of what fuels me about this industry is I'm, a, I'm still a fan. I mean, granted, we all get jaded and we all get annoyed. And I'm like, ah, screw this. I'm not going to do this bullshit. But um ultimately like i'm just such a fan of everything and everyone that i you know i i've known rick baker since i was 13 years old but i saw rick the other night at the academy museum opening and i i still get butterflies in my stomach but we've been friends for decades you know or john landis i always get nervous because i i love john but i this is a guy who directed like five of my most favorite movies you know so I still remain a massive fan and I'm still, you know, I get all spun around and giddy like a little school kid when I, I get to meet all these people. It's super fun. I forget where I, where, where position I'm at in the food chain. And, <laughs> and they're like, well, you're Howard Berger. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's, that's Rick Baker. Like nobody's greater than Rick Baker. So Howard, when you talk about the actors, I imagine that you get to see them at their best or their worst in the sense of there's a lot of work that goes into the makeup that you do with these mm-hmm. folks. I can imagine then that if they're going to be, you know, super patient, that's going to come out. If they're going to get frustrated by it, you know, that's, it's a lot of work as far as getting these folks ready and what they have to go through to get into the creations that uh, you've designed for them. Yeah, no, absolutely. But you know, they're on, they, they look at us too. You know, it's something I talked to James McAvoy about and he's like, I learned, 
a lot from watching you guys work. Like you, the patience you had, you guys were first in last out. So I have nothing to say, you know, like, I like, ah, these hours are too early when I'm in an hour before James, you know? And uh, I always like to, to prep an actor, you know, like, okay, this is what we're going to do. This is how it's going to go. So it's not a, not a surprise, you know? And we just want to make the environment comfortable and inviting for them too. So they like that as well. There's a lot that goes into it. Like I said, I've had two actors in my career who I hope to never, ever see again, but that's not bad at all. You know, you have actors that are very uh, collaborative. Tilda Swinton, for instance, extremely collaborative, you know, is very artistic minded, very outside the box. And, you know, she had a lot to do with the White Witch's look, you know, also, um, uh, the, a makeup artist named Nikki Gooley, who's out of Australia, had a tremendous amount to do with her look as well. She ended up handling Tilda at the end of the day. But we went around in circles trying to find a look for Tilda. And E.C.'s Mundinson, who was our costume designer, had a tremendous amount to do. It was a big collaborative effort, you know. But Tilda definitely had her, to, her, her thoughts about what this should be and how she was going to play it and how she should look. And I really appreciated that. And top of the fact that she's like one of the most fun people that you can ever work with. She's just great you know just a quick story at the end of the show we shot an area called flock hill uh, where the big battle is and because our turnaround was so bad there was a ski lodge like an old ski lodge there that had like little cabins so the production rented that whole ski lodge for us so all the makeup effects people and some of the costume people people that had to get up at ungodly hours lived there because it was like a 15 minute drive opposed to being at a nice super hotel that was an hour drive so one night, surprise, surprise, we were having a party and um, Tilda came to the party and she was like, yeah, screw this. I'm moving here with you guys. I'm moving <laughs> out of that stupid hotel. I don't want to be in there with the producers. So she moved. Uh, she rented one of the houses or had production rent one of the houses and Tilda lived with us for the last like eight weeks of shooting. And every night was a party <laughs> and it was great. Um, and she just brought so much to our encampment, what have you. And just became one of us. She's like, I'm one of you guys. I'm more of you guys than I am living in a hotel with the uh, you know upper echelon. I like to be with you guys. You guys are always creative. You guys have the best parties, and she's she's wonderful. You know, it's 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 great. And I think James worked like one or two days when we were out there at the end of the film, and he stayed with us as well. I'm like, dude, you have to stay with us. Don't stay in the hotel. <laughs> so um, yeah, it was it was magnificent. And, and great. And, and that, again, that's what's so wonderful about it. But you do, you prep, you prep the actors. And if an actor is truly a, an actor, mm-hmm. you know, not a uh, YouTube celebrity who ends up getting cast in a, a, for a part because they have 27 million followers, but yet they've never been on a film set before. There's a big difference between an actor and, there's, and a movie star or a celebrity even. I wouldn't even say movie star, I'd just say celebrity. And working with act, real actors is, is a gift. And I have always learned so much watching actors do their skill, do their, their talent. It's truly amazing. You know, some live in the character, some turn it off and on. However it is, I respect it. I'm considerate of their process, you know, and a lot of times when they're in the chair, that's part of their process too. They start to see their character come to life and get, you know, mentally prepared. And when they come into the trailer, it's them. And when they leave the trailer, it's their character. So I always look at it as it's tools. You know, we bring X amount of a percentage, we bring 50% of the character to the table, but then I need to have the actors bring it to life. Mm -hmm. So I can do a great makeup on somebody who's not that 
doesn't really pull it off, then it's a fail. But when I have the combination of I can, I can do this makeup and then they bring it to life, you know, it's, it's truly amazing. And you're like, this worked. And it's a partnership. It's a collaborative partnership and you work together creating it all. It's not just like this, this, and this. And I stay invested, you know, like when I was working on James, when Tammy, Sarah, and myself were working on James, even though we had 175 other creatures going on, James was our focus for three and a half hours every single day. Like I, that's all we thought about, made sure he was good, made sure it all worked and was perfect. And then once James was finished, we would then run around and, and orchestrate the rest of the needs of the production. You know, it's all working hand in hand, you know, and you work with every single department, as you know, like VFX and us were hand in hand on that show. It was really the fir- my first experience being so collaborative with VFX, you know, like deciding where we would end and where they would begin, figuring out what worked best. It wasn't a competition. It was about how do we give Adam or Andrew Adamson his uh, vision. And at the same time, Greg was in Texas with Robert Rodriguez doing the same thing. That was a huge learning curve for him as well, working hand in hand with VFX because there was such massive crossover. So we were both on shows with massive crossover. You know, the, uh, Don McAlpine was our cinematographer and I had worked with Don on Predator. Not that I had a personal relationship with on Predator, but I worked for Stan Winston on Predator and I knew Don from that. And then working with Don on Narnia was great. But yeah, I mean, it's, you know, and costumes, EC uh, is still one of my best friends. I love her and she's genius and brilliant and can do anything. And we worked hand in hand with everything. And it was the perfect storm. That movie was the per- it's all the right people at the right time in the right place to make a really outstanding movie. Well, Howard, you mentioned earlier that you waited until there was an actual screening to see it all come together. Obviously, you're working with professionals and working very closely. But when you left that set, did you know it was going to come together as well as it as it did? Or, I don't know, butterflies for those months while they're yeah, you know, getting I, that final finish? I mean, I remember when they released the trailer and I just went and paid full price to go see the trailer. Yeah, it blew me away. I mean, I, I believed it was going to be great. I came back going, this was the greatest experience of my career. And probably with the exception of my children being born and meeting Rick Baker, it was one of the greatest (laughs) experiences of my life, you know? Yeah, it was, it was when it came out and I saw it for the first time, I just, I walked out dizzy from how wonderful it was. It was, it had surpassed my expectations because you don't ever know you have hopes. I mean, even nowadays, I even have less expectations. You know, I work on something I'm like, We'll see how it turns out. I mean, I know I did my job. I know, I know all these guys did their job. It's always like a chef, you know, or a baker. It's like, we give you the ingredients and now you have to, is the souffle going to rise or is it going to collapse? That's, that's now on your plate, you know, so to speak, you know, it's a roll of the dice. You can work your ass off and then it turns out to be a complete turd, uh, which happens often, or you can work your ass off and it turns out to be great. Well, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, as we've mentioned, was well-recognized. Uh, so yeah. there's all the Oscar excitement and the and awards season. At this stage in 2006, is Prince Caspian, the next film in the series, already greenlit? And are you guys starting work, or is that still some other development stage? Yeah, we're starting work. And, and you know, whenever you're on a movie, you always go, God, I wish I had an opportunity to do something different. You know, I would do it this way or this way. And this was a great opportunity. And Tammy Lane and I sat on set on Narnia and like, okay, so if we ever do another one, I want to redesign this. I want to do different. Da, 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 da. So when Prince Caspian came about, we got to redesign everything and refigure things out, you know, and, and Andrew was back, which made me super happy. We began to shoot in New Zealand for the first part of the shoot, which was wonderful. And then 
for all the massive stuff, we went over to Prague, the Czech Republic. And that's where I ended up hiring 50 people from around the world. I think we hit 10 countries. We had 10 countries worth of people. And I got to meet some really magnificent artists and wonderful people. And, and I brought a small crew from LA. But when we were in New Zealand, the first leg, it was just uh, Sarah Rabano, Tammy Lane, and myself, and Jeff Himmel. So there's only four of us in New Zealand doing everything, which was pretty much Peter Dinklage and Warwick Davis stuff, you know. Got it. And it was great fun. And, and Peter, I fell in love with. Uh, and same with Warwick. I love them dearly. And the interesting thing about them is, first off, you know, obviously, they're little people, but you don't think about that. To me, they're huge people. They're so amazing. Their talent, their kindness, their personalities, everything about them is, you don't ever, it's just Pete's Pete, Warwick's Warwick. I learned a lot from Peter and Warwick about things and prejudice and so forth, you know, and how smaller people, people that aren't average size are treated. You know, the thing about Peter Dinklage is that he's such an amazing actor. You can cast him in anything and it doesn't, it doesn't matter. I mean, it doesn't matter his size or not because he's so outstanding. He's a true actor. He's a true thespian. It was great. Like at one point we we thought we lost Pete on the show and Andrew was like, I don't even know what to do. And I said, there's nobody else. I said to me, there's only Peter Dinklage and there's only Warwick Davis. I said, we're going to be hard pressed. I said, this part is so pivotal without Peter Dinklage guys. We're, we're in the custard, you know? And uh, so it ended up working out great. And Tammy handled Peter's makeup. Sarah Robano, I gave her Warwick Davis's makeup. And uh, that was a big thing. That was her first big, big makeup. Because prior to actually, prior to becoming the big makeup artist she is today, she worked for K&B as a fabricator, which is like, you know, helping make suits. And she helped build the centaurs and build the, you know, she came from the world of fabrication. But on, not, on Lion Witch in the Wardrobe, we were so strapped for people that I just announced like, who wants to learn how to do makeup? And Sarah <laughs> stepped up to the plate. She's like, Howie, I do. And so we taught her how to do a fawn you know, the nose and the ears and all. And she did it and she just got better and better and better. And I'm like, okay, this is the big thing. She kept practicing after we were done on the show. Some mm -hmm. people just let it slide. And there were people that I gave opportunity to and they just didn't pick it up again and then feel like they deserved to go to the next one to be a makeup artist. Sarah kept working and working and working to get her better. And when Prince Caspian came out, I hired Sarah and I said, I'm going to give you Warwick Davis's character. That was a big thing. And both Peter and Warwick, I mean, they, if, I think they shot like 40 times, but it was really great fun, you know, and luckily Peter shaved his head, which helped us a lot. And, you know, Tammy handled all his makeups and, and Sarah, and I would help Sarah in the morning. And mostly it was just because I like to, to rouse uh, Warwick. I always like to just F on Warwick. It was just fun. <laughs> and I would always prep a theme from one of his movies he was in. And I would wait, see him coming to the trailer. And then as soon as he walked in, I'd hit the button. So like one day he'd walk in and then I hit the score to Willow, you know, or then <laughs> Harry Potter or Star Wars. And he, he loved it. And I would, and most of the time I was there just to keep him occupied because he hate, he, the process he hated is the hair work. Mm. It just feels scratchy and itchy. So when it came time for him to do the hair, because Sarah and I were next to each other. So I had my station to the right and Sarah right to the left. So that way I could occupy and distract Warwick 
while she was doing the hair work. And I'd be, you know, Warwick, da, 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 da. you know, I always tease him about like, you know, I love child's play. It's like, I wasn't in child's play. I'm like, really? <laughs> but you weren't child. You weren't Chucky. You know, I wasn't Chucky. So, you know, anything to torment Warwick. So, and he's just lovely. His whole family is lovely. His, his, his wife and his, and his two children were wonderful. And it was interesting. I actually, just a side thing. So we promote, we went to promote Prince Caspian and we were in London. I flew to London and I met up with Warwick and his wife, Sammy. God, I don't even remember what event it was. Probably a BAFTA event. They didn't screen Prince Caspian, but they had the, they were running trailers and it was a big promotional thing. I think also with a publication from over there. And uh, they had the trailer for Love Guru with Mike Myers, which of course is a hideous, horrible film. But in it, Vern Troyer, who's a little person too, who's passed away, sadly. Uh, there's a lot of jokes to, at his expense in the trailer. And I was sitting next to Warwick and Sam and I looked over and they were really hurt by it. It was really a super offensive. And I thought, yeah, this is Mike Myers not being considerate of people. And even though we don't think about it, but you know, that was very discriminatory. And afterwards I just said, I'm really, really sorry about that. It was really terrible. He's like, yeah, I just don't know why we have to be the brunt of jokes. You wouldn't do that to somebody else, you know, of diversity or of, of disability, you know? And I said, you're absolutely right. I said, that just kind of falls into play with Mike Myers' sensibilities, I guess. So it was interesting. That taught me a lot as well. I remember Peter Dinklage telling me a story, and it's actually the pieces in that movie, Station Agent, which is a fantastic film that Pete's in, where they, you know, they pick him up and put him up on a table or whatever, and he goes nuts. And Pete said, that's the thing that he has hated his entire life. You know, you don't pick up a little person, you know, somebody did that on set to Karen Shaw. And I was like, put him down right now. I said, don't ever, ever, ever do. It's not a toy. It's, it's, it's true. It really makes you think, you know, I mean, a lot of those guys are as heavy as me too. I, there were, we had one little person on Prince Caspian. That guy had to weigh like 250 pounds. I mean, I could, and he was small and I'm like, how did <laughs> it's just like they took him and smushed him down. He was so heavy. I, cause what he, once in a while, he's like, here, Howard, pick me up. And I'm like, are you sure? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, dude, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I, I love I love uh, actors. I love actors and all all shapes and sizes and talent and so forth. And I've been really, really lucky, you know, and I've been lucky just I'm circling back to just little little people performers. I, I love working with them. They're just these wonderful people that are great actors that that bring these characters to life, you know, and I've had so much fun, like on the Narnia films with them and on Oz the Great and Powerful, you know, even when we were in, in Czech Republic, I went around and I, I actually cast a bunch of people to play our dwarf characters because they were having our time and i'm like are these you guys want to be in a movie you know and they and i got them all cast they all got jobs on the film working as these characters and doing makeups and uh it was super super fun you know and laughing all the time to me laughing is the best thing like if i'm on a movie if we're not having fun i don't want anything to do with it really and and now as i'm getting older and i've been at this for almost 40 years if I'm on a film and it's not fun, I'm going to leave. <laughs> really am. If I start to see a bunch of like just nonsense, I'm just like, guys, we're, this is not for me. And I don't have to. I don't have. To. I'm glad I'm on the tail end of my career opposed to like just starting. If I was just starting, I'd probably, you know, jump off a bridge. But um, I feel bad for everyone just getting into it now because it's pretty harsh. But, you know, after 40 some odd years, I'm like, I'm good. I can do whatever I want. If it does, if it smells like a fish, it's a fish. So I'm going to just walk away. So. So was the Prince Caspian's experience, did it 
recreate what you enjoyed so much about Lion Witch in the Wardrobe? I mean, obviously you're able to do some difference on the designs. Yeah. Much more emphasis on the dwarf characters, as we mentioned, Peter Dinklage and Warwick Davis playing that. I also noticed that some of the other creatures, the centaurs and the minotaur specifically, have much larger roles in the second movie yeah. as well. And does that change any of your process or the experience overall on that on the second it, film? It does, absolutely. So, I mean, I did have this a great experience. It was another exhausting show. Uh, I was just beaten to a pulp on that one. Um, we had some monstrous days. But yeah, no, it gave me the opportunity to like, I, I used Shane Rangi on all those movies. Shane played Ottman, General Ottman, which is the big Minotaur, the White Witch's Minotaur in the first film. And then when we did the second film, we kind of, we redesigned everything and made it a little more comfortable and made it so he could actually see this time. Because in the first film, he couldn't. So we would go to his end mark and then walk it back and count the steps. So then he knew, like, this is 10 steps. If you take 11, you're going over the cliff. I'm just letting you know. So, uh, and Shane is a wonderful, wonderful uh, Kiwi actor and stunt guy. So, but we had, we had some really good guys and um, it was fun. I mean, we added centaurs. We had like really great actors like Cornell John played uh, one of our centaurs, played Glenn Storm and a guy named Mike Fields handled his makeup, applied it every day. And, and Shane was back, of course. So we got a chance to redesign everything and take a look at things and see how to make things work better, how to make them feel more diverse for people. And we knew what we were getting into. We'd already done it once. And this time we, you know, we changed the satyrs, the way the satyrs looked were totally different than the first film, uh, which were more makeups. These were suits and heads, mechanical heads that we built. The challenge was just being in a country that there's a slight language barrier. You find people that are really good. And there's a few that were not that great, but the Czech crew was fantastic. I mean, they're masters at hair work and there was a lot of hair work. And we had this one guy, uh, Ivor Strangy, who is a, a big Czech makeup artist. And he was great. What was funny is the whole time we were there for seven months, the whole time, none of the Czechs like would speak. I didn't think they knew English really. And then on the last day, they all spoke English. And I'm like, you son of a bitches. And so, because uh, I was like, you know, I'd always try to like, I'd learn certain words and, and try to direct them. And, you know, it's like, oh, maybe do this and this and this. And then the last day, I'm like, you know, I'm trying to like, so I really had a good time. Like, yeah, no, we had a great time too. And I'm like, you dirty dogs, all of you. You knew what we were saying the whole time. But I really, really loved them. And they were really wonderful. And they went the distance, man. They really did. But what was interesting is, is being in the Czech Republic, and we forget about this because the Czech Republic used to be communist, that those guys were all communists. <laughs> and 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 there's the mentality was still there. Hmm. So like they would all gather together and like just all want to sit together. So like I would do experiments and I'd take my chair and I'd go sit in the middle of all the checks. And then slowly they would move away from me because they didn't want to be with the American, which you know that's fine. <laughs> and then I I'd just keep doing it. So we also had vans, like six vans that would be down at the hotel every morning and everybody would come down. And I'd have to do a check checklist make sure everybody's in the van so the checks would all get in one van together and like that van couldn't leave unless all the checks were in there so one day we wrap and i split the checks up i'm like no 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 you go in there and then i'm like that's it everybody cut off go 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 they were like up against the window looking like oh my god are we going to you know where, what's happening i really wanted to mix it up and i'm like okay guys this is these are my rules now so we're gonna play by these rules but i had a great time in the czech republic it was hard we had a lot of you know a lot of things always come up i don't eat pork 
but there's more pork served in Prague than anywhere. I always say I'm sweating like a pig in Prague. <laughs> and like I would do go do a count. You know, I'd be on the walkie. I'm like, I walk through the catering and I'm like, all right, there's uh, there's a pig on a spit here. And uh, also there's prosciutto. And also and sometimes there'd be no less than nine pork dishes. And I'm like, well, it looks like I'll be having salad today. <laughs> it was tough, but our hours were crazy. You know, we, we ended up shooting the one battle scene in an area called Usti, which was like right on the edge of uh, Germany and Poland. And it was it was really like, and the hotel we were staying at was just horrible. Like the fir- the fourth floor was a brothel. <laughs> on the floor. And it was like no air conditioning. We're shooting during the summer. There's no, sh- I mean, it was just, it couldn't have been worse, but somehow we just did it. And we ended up moving. I finally had it. And I went to Phil Stoyer and Mark Johnson. And I said, if you want us to stay here, you two guys move in with us. All right. But if not, we're out. I'm moving my entire crew out of this place. This is not conducive. This is not proper. And it looked like the outside of the building looked like something from like Thunderbirds, like a, you know, it's like really just a cement block, you know? And I'm like, boy, this couldn't be more communistic than, than it comes. You know, it's like, and then we have this beautiful building. I'm like, <laughs> yee, it's like a cinder block. But no, it was cool. I mean, we had a different DP this time. We had uh, Walter Lindenlob, who has become like one of my best friends. We've done two movies together. We did Prince Caspian, and then we did uh, Dolphin Tale, uh, another exciting adventure. But Walter is a great cinematographer. Beautiful work. He does beautiful work. He, he's really a master. And I actually think the cinematography in the second film is way better than the first. Uh Don was a lot older on the show uh, and, and it was a big show to do and he did a great job. But Walter, like especially the forest scenes, I mean, Walter just came in and they were just beautiful. I mean, he really made a, a gorgeous film. So I love working with Walter. It was fun to shoot in the Czech Republic. Slovenia was amazing. When we went to Slovenia, that was super, super fun. Some of the best wine I, I've ever had in my life. <laughs> and uh, and Poland was cool too. You know, I mean, it was, it was all good. I mean, they're always fun, super fun adventures and like our makeup trailers I remember were really janky and in Prague they were buses they were like public buses that were converted wow to trailers they were they were like shocking and there was one one driver this one Czech driver and all he did is smoke cigarettes and he'd even smoke cigarettes when he was in the cab and the whole trailer we just called him Smokey Joe <laughs> and I just finally had to go like dude you can't smoke in the trailer like you can't, you know, the, we'd go in, it was like one of them. Oh, I had all the Aussie girls in there. I had Karen Jackson, Kath Brown, uh, Elka, uh, Jess Reedy. They were all in there and they'd come out. They're like, oh, we can't. Smokey Joe is just going crazy today. And I'd go and pull the guy out. I'm like, dude, no smoking in the trailer. If you want to smoke, you got to smoke over there. And he's like, <laughs> he then thought he could solve it. And he just put a piece of plywood between, the, the, you know, like, like between where the girls were and him. But it didn't matter. And I'm like, once again, uh, the effects, the the check fix did not work. So I'm like, guys, come on. Yeah, crazy drivers, man. Really crazy there. But uh, yeah, it was it was wild. But, you know, that went on for a long time. Shot, shot and shot and shot. I mean, I don't know how long. The end of the movie, you know, there's the big parade. And I had mentioned my youngest son, Jacob, played a fawn. But what was cool is Tilda reached out to me and she's like, I want to come and be a centaur in the movie. And I'm going to bring, you know, my family, my kids and my my partner. And I said, yeah, let's do it. She says, but don't tell anybody. We're just going to come and get made up and be in the scene. Just place us. So I made up the whole family. We made up the family, took them to set. And they're in the scene. They're, you can see them clearly. It's, they're the centaur family. And then afterwards, I went over to Andrew and I went, 
what do you think about these centaurs? He's like, oh yeah, they look really good. I said, do you want to say hi to them? Because they'd like that. And he's like, oh, absolutely. Bring them over. And I brought them over. And he just went, oh my God, Tilda. <laughs> and she's like, well, oh, I just wanted to be in the movie, Andrew. And I told Howard. <laughs> so yeah, so Tilda and her family have a cameo uh, along with my son. And, and actually, uh, Walter Lindenlob's son is a fawn in the movie too. So he was Jake's age. They were very young. Yeah, we just started grabbing people. I'm like, okay, you're going to be a fawn. You're going to be a So it was good fun. But yeah, Tilda snuck her way into the into Prince Caspian as a centaur. Right? Right <laughs> I'll have to watch, go back and watch that yeah. part again myself. Yeah, yeah she's in there. You'll see there's a, there's a family of centaur, and it's Tilda and uh, Sandros and uh, her two children. It's very funny. We haven't had a good time on, on this movie, Howard. Then I imagine you're pumped then for when Voyage of the Dawn Treader comes around. But also I know that um, now we have a new director. Michael yep. Apted comes in. Yep. They've changed the director of photography again. Yes. Anything different about how this one gets off the ground compared to the other two? Yeah, well, we knew we, we, had, we had less time to prep it. I don't know if it was a slightly smaller budget, but it, it had passed hands from Disney to Fox. So it had a different vibe. Michael Apted was wonderful. Well, I mean, I've been a fan of Michael Apted's forever with his documentary series, The mm. Seven Up, which I think is brilliant and very diverse director. Not one of his films are the same. You know, you couldn't go, oh, that's a Michael Apted film. Oh, that's a Michael Apted film. But I really, really liked him a lot. And then uh, Dante Spinotti came on and he was our cinematographer. And I was a big fan of his work, of course. It's just when digital cinematography started to come about and Dante wanted to shoot it digitally. And I didn't 100% agree. Not that that mattered what I thought, but I mean, it's Dante, for goodness sakes. He was a master. But I felt that the film suffered from it being shot digitally and, mm. and it's shot in a style. There's a lot of handheld stuff that I didn't feel like the movie should have had, perhaps. I, you know, we just came from two films that are very grand and big and giant musical sort of, you know, like Buzzy Berkeley thing, you know, just huge. And I felt that we got a little too intimate, perhaps. Um, in the way things were photographed, but that's okay. That's the style Michael and Dante decided to go with. It's just my personal feeling. But yeah, I mean, I miss the fact that I wish Disney had kept on to it and Walden Media had been involved more. And, you know, when you're working for Fox, it was a different animal for sure. The thing I did like is we got to go back and redesign everything again. We redesigned the Minotaurs. And um, I had, uh, I brought Shane Rangi back, which was fantastic. I wanted to do the suits all practical which we were able to do. And we designed the suits at K&B so that they could wear, they could be photographed from head to tail or, or I'm sorry, from, yeah, head to, well, head to, head to hoof. <laughs> and, and that there didn't have to be digital augmentation or alteration, which Michael was very happy about. Michael's a very practical guy. He, he likes to see everything on set and see how it goes and orchestrate it. The thing I found about Michael, which I, I found endearing is that Monday and Tuesday, he was grouchy. Wednesday, he softened up. Thursday, he was softer. Friday, he was like full party mode, ready for the weekend. <laughs> and we had it, then I'd see him on the weekends. We had a great time. And then Monday would come and he'd be grouchy. You know? <laughs> but I, I stayed in touch with him. Uh, you know, sadly, he passed, which was heartbreaking because he was a very, very lovely guy. I really respected the hell out of him. But he, uh, this was a different world for him too. You know, the step into the world of Narnia. And, and this time, Andrew was the producer. And Michael wanted to make his own movie, which was understandable. And Andrew understood that and respected that. You know, it was, uh, yeah, a lot to it. You know, I, we did the uh, Minotaur heads. Uh, they were all radio controlled and lip synced, which was difficult because we ended up having to rebuild the heads on location. Lon Mucky, who is a, a mechanical engineer that I brought with me, 
the heads showed up and they just weren't quite right. And so we had to take them apart and rebuild them in record time, which Lon did. And I did a lot of the puppeteering, which I'm pretty good at, but it was difficult with the thing. I think at the end of the day, they replaced the mouths because they changed a lot of the dialogue. Mm. So what I was doing didn't match what the, you know, the Minotaurs were saying and or the satyr we had as well. We added some cast members. Like we have, have a new dwarf that was played by a, a good mate of mine, uh, Chris Crookshanks, who I love to death. He lived, and we went and we shot it in Australia. We shot on the Gold Coast, though, and they built this amazing ship on a giant gimbal. It was like the most spectacular thing I'd ever seen. I'm like, this is bloody incredible. Because through the course of pre-production, they were talking like, well, maybe we build a ship and we really take it to sea. And I'm like, ooh, that's not going to go well. And then they finally said, no, we're going to build this on a gimbal, put it right by the water, so we're always shooting. And the thing spun around. It was a, a, a feat of genius. A feat of genius. The Dawn Treader was great. I even got like seasick once in a while. I'm like, I got to get off this thing. But I had a great crew. It was a small crew this time. Mm. And I always, I said to Tammy, I said, this is our, our vacation because we're not nearly working as hard as we did on the other two. We're working. We have some hard days, but not like Lion Witch and Caspian, not even close. So there's not as many characters no, in this all. one. It's mostly humans. Yeah, mostly like for, humans for, for the course of the course of the film. Absolutely, you know, and and then you know we we meet the duffel puds, and that was like a week of shooting, and it, we just did a bunch of different things. The people I had with me were my original folk from Australia that I had on the other two films, you know, Kath Brown and Elka and Jess Reedy and Karen Jackson and Paul Caddy. So I felt really lucky. It was it was good. I was able to bring Rabano. Sarah Rabano was on another show, but she got a break. And I pleaded to the producers, like, I went to Spoil Story. I'm like, I need to have Rabano out here for at least a week. So she worked on, yeah, I needed to work on all three. So we, Sarah came out from New Zealand, worked a week with us, which was great fun. I think she, it was Duffel Bud. She came in for Duffel Buds. But yeah, it was it was a blast. I mean, they're all great films. And then that ended and the movie came out. And I think it, it was it was it was good. It was it's not my favorite of the Narnia films, but but I like it. I'm proud of it. And then there was no more, you know, after that, which was very, very sad. And I know that I've read that there was talk of doing a fourth yeah. film. There's a lot of sort of producer and ownership rights and, and those sort of things going on in the background. They haven't contacted you about no, possibly. No designing or any of that stuff at this stage. nothing no i've I'm, we're not involved at all and if they do do it because i know joe johnston was tagged to direct who's a really good director nobody said a word to us i mean who knows what it's going to be for all i know it could all be digital you know if it even happens you know or depending on the success of the lord of the rings amazon series mm. maybe they'll do a narnia series you know who knows it's you never know and just because i did the first three doesn't mean i'm obligated or that i sh i'm they're going to attach me it's not like hey we should get the guy that did the first if anything they'll say let's get somebody new that has a different take on it since you know those guys already have a look you know already established it and we want to go a different route who, who knows? I don't know. I mean, if I got a call, I would probably say, hell yeah, you know, depending on who's involved and all that stuff too. You know, I mean, if they're going to take Narnia, because I remember, actually, I remember reading a script for the redo and it was terrible. And it was, it took place in modern time in New York with kids. And I'm like, yeah, no way in hell am I going to be involved with this. And <laughs> somebody had sent me the script like, hey, can you break this down? And I read it and I'm like, you guys can't do this. You can't like update Narnia. There's a reason for why it works. That's like, I mean, it's just so horrible. It's so horrible. I, I, I was, I was like, I don't want to have anything to do with this. This blows. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully it's not that. Well, with the future of Narnia, just in question in general, 
what else are you working on? Where can people see your other work, Howard? Oh, well, gosh, I've done so much. All the Quentin Tarantino films we've worked on, you know, be it myself or be it Greg. We've been with Quentin for since the beginning of his, of his career. He's been very loyal and, and vice versa. You know, I've been working a lot with Seth MacFarlane. So the, there's a series called The Orville. The third mm-hmm. season's coming out the beginning of next year. And uh, I think it'll be its final season. That was great. I did all three seasons, uh, department heading, and that was tons and tons of fun. A Million Aliens and working with Seth MacFarlane is always a complete pleasure. He's a fantastic person and amazing creative person. Great cast, everything. I loved them all. Um, gosh, there's always a lot of stuff. Uh, I, I department headed Space Jam, A New Legacy. That was really fun. And, uh Vam, which is uh, an Amazon series, which I'm super, super proud of. The guy named Little Marvin was the showrunner, the creator and showrunner, who I think is a genius and excited to see what else he does next, because he's certainly a, a, a new vision of horror, a new voice in the horror world, which is nice. Smart horror. Um, you know, Greg is still on Walking Dead, working on the final season. We do Fear the Walking Dead as well. And then uh, Greg, obviously is involved with, very involved with the Creep Show TV series, which is on Shutter and AMC. He's the showrunner and writer, director, mastermind, everything, you know, that's his show 100%. And I'm sure he's going to be doing a million other things. The second Walking Dead wraps, he'll probably have a, a whole bunch of new things to move on to, which is great because he's, that's the sort of guy he is. He's always busy, works, he works so hard, you know, and dedicated. But yeah, I mean, you know, there's a ton of movies like, you know, you want to go all the way back to the 80s, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street 4. And I worked for Stan Winston on Predator and the original Predator and uh, Aliens and um, Pumpkinhead and Rick Baker was here in the Hendersons and tons and tons of stuff. Child's Play, the original Child's Play with Kevin Yeager, you know, but yeah, K&B's got, you know, over 800 credits under their belt. And, you know, I'm never surprised. Sometimes I forget what I worked on and something will come <laughs> up and I'm like, this feels really familiar. I'm like, oh yeah, because I worked on it. So, you know, sometimes it might be small. Sometimes people bring stuff up all the time. Like, oh, you know, I saw this movie and I'm like, I don't, I don't remember. I'm not sure. Did I work on that? They're like, yeah, you worked on that. And I'm like, oh, so much stuff, you know, but you know, like we were saying earlier, like sometimes you work your ass off and you don't know how it's going to turn out. There was a really great show we did called Jupiter's legacy which was on netflix right and it did one season we worked so hard the work is beautiful the show is great and then netflix just didn't renew it for a second season which was kind of heartbreaking for everybody yeah i watched that i was uh, familiar with the comic books it was based uh-huh. on and uh, had high hopes for it and uh yeah it looked great and i yeah. can see where your work was in there and uh, i mean just the, the character stuff is all fantastic i i think they had some problems with how far they moved the story along i think that yeah. was part of the they, they had a sort of a slow roll that uh, just didn't get the audience it deserved. So, right. I think that's exactly what happened. But yeah, it was, I mean, we did everybody's makeup and it was Tammy Lane again was the supervisor on set and she went up there and she handled the, the workload as well as juggling production, which was that would might've been more difficult than the actual work. Mm-hmm. So, but she was a champ and she always has our best interest in mind, which is great. So, and then I've been really focusing on uh, as I'm a governor at the um, Academy of motion pictures, arts and science. I really take that job seriously. It's not a job, that responsibility, you don't get paid for it. It's, it's a volunteer thing. And uh, I take that very seriously. And I've been very involved with the museum, the Academy Museum, which opened up September 30th to the public, which is amazing. You know, decades in the making and finally opened. And it's really a great, great place to visit when you're in LA. And now it's time to just start thinking about other stuff. I've been writing a book, 
uh, which I have to deliver in three weeks. Um, <laughs> that's why I get up early. I get up every morning at 3 a.m. and work on the book. And then I leave the house around 6, 6.30 to go to work. So I get a couple hours in on the book. But uh, that'll be out September 1st, 2022. And it's uh, really kind of fun, actually. It's about it's adventures in the world of makeup effects. And it's not about me. It's about my industry. I interviewed 70 people from makeup artists to directors to actors to editors to VFX uh, that have their own input into or their own insight rather into what we do and I got the list is amazing of people I spoke to and it was and it was I maybe because it's me it was easy I mean I just reached out and they're like 100% will do it absolutely will do it so that it's called um, Masters of Makeup Effects and it'll be out September 1st 2022 Huge book, hardcover, a million photos, great stories. It's all funny stories, exciting war stories. You name it, it's in there. So I'm excited about that. So that's, I have three weeks and I got to <laughs> I've been on it for a long time. Though. We, my, my friend, Marshall, Marshall Julius, who's a, who's a, a, a writer, uh, he uh, is co-writing it with me and he's in London. So we've both been working on it. So he's, he's handling the brunt of the words. I'm handling the brunt of the photos and when you collect 4,000 photos from people that have never been seen before, it's hard to pick the ones that you didn't, you don't want to use because they're all so magnificent. The book sounds like it's going to come together. Great, Howard. If it's any yeah. indication, I think the stories you've told today, it was really a lot of fun. We're not going to wait till September. I hope we'll get you back to talk about some of these other projects <laughs> before sure. then. Thanks so much for being on today. This was, this was great. My pleasure. Thank you so much. It was great fun. Season nine continues. If you're new to the podcast, I hope you'll check out some other episodes. It's easy to peruse the entire catalog at the website, blowthelineoneword.biz. That's B-I-Z. All episodes of the podcast are also now on INDB, so you can cross-reference the film credits of my guests. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcast and rate us if you like what you hear. If you've got questions or comments, you can send email to skid, S-K-I-D, at blowthelineoneword.biz. If you're on Facebook, you can find photos and other behind-the-scenes materials at Podcast Below the Line. And finally, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Pod Below the Line. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Wan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. Loyal listeners, you are much appreciated. If you're enjoying this season, tell your friends. We'll be back again next week.